Welcome to Big Time Dicks, the show where we take a closer look at the laws and lawmakers fucking up your life. I'm Joanna Rothkoff, Managing Editor at Jezebel. And I'm Prachi Gupta, Senior Reporter at Jezebel. Before we get into the real podcast, we need to bring your attention to a very exciting event that's coming up in just a couple of weeks. We're hosting an event called Six Months Deep with Big Time Dicks, a live podcast taping and call to action. And it's free. It's free. So you have no excuse. And we have amazing guests. Prachi, tell us about our guests. Our guests are journalist Amy Goodman, who's the host of Democracy Now! We also have comedian Aparna Nancherla, who is a former writer on Late Night with Seth Meyers and has written about how hard it is to produce comedy in the Trump era. And Erica Andiola, the current political director for Our Revolution and a former press secretary with the Bernie Sanders campaign. That's a crazy lineup. It's awesome. I don't even know why they want to do it. (laughs) Just kidding. It's going to be so fun. We're going to have postcards. We're going to have drinks. We're going to have games. There's going to be us. It's really just actually another one typical Wednesday night for me and Joanna, but we're letting you guys in on it. So if you're interested in going, go to the Bell House website. It's www.thebellhouseny.com, and you can find us on the calendar. June 28th. Now let's get to the episode. This week, Jeff Sessions conveniently lost his memory as he testified about Russia in front of the Senate Intelligence Committee. I do not have any recollection of meeting or talking to the Russian ambassador or any other Russian officials. If any brief interaction occurred in passing with the Russian ambassador during that reception, I do not remember. And California Senator Kamala Harris was not having it. And she was the only one who was cut off and interrupted by Senate Republicans. I wonder why. It's probably a coincidence. The policy is based on the principle that the president... Sir, uh, I'm not asking about the principle. I'm asking when you you would be asked these questions and you would rely on that policy, did you not ask your staff to show you the policy that would be the basis for you refusing to answer the majority of questions that have been asked you? should be allowed to answer the question. She also became like, yes, queen politician of the week. Everyone was like tweeting her gifts and freaking out. I mean, I love her, but people really were happy to have her there. They were. I mean, I started seeing people being like, Kamala Harris for president 2020, which... To be fair, I've been saying that for like a long time, but I'm glad everybody else feels it too. You were following her career closely as attorney general in California and were like, that woman should be president one day. I mean, like for the past year and a half. (laughs) (laughs) She is awesome. This week, we're talking to Amy Hagstrom-Miller, CEO and founder of Whole Woman's Health, the lead plaintiff in the Supreme Court case, Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstead. We're talking to her about the landmark victory from last year and how that's affected abortion access in America. You know, once you shutter clinic facilities, you've really decimated that care environment in ways that are not only difficult to rebuild, but we actually may never see it rebuilt in the same way. But first, our week in weenies. Our first weenie, as we said earlier, is Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who, just among other things, when we were all watching the Senate intelligence hearing, he's like, people are like, oh, that guy's a Keebler elf. I guess so. Making Keebler fudge-covered cookies takes lots of fudge. Keebler elves are so inherently good, and he's so inherently evil that it's hard for me to see him as, like, an elf. I think as Kelly Faircloth put it, She's a staff writer at Jezebel. He's a racist Keebler elf. I mean, that is definitely a necessary qualifier. Qualifier, 
she also published a, a list of a bunch of different things he reminds her of, and I really encourage everybody to read it. Anyway, he was just so smug. He was such a stonewaller. Another blog published on the slot by Ellie Sheckett, friend of the podcast. The headline was, Jeff Sessions, before and after stonewalling, quote, I am not stonewalling. Basically, the entire time he would be asked a question, he'd be like, I don't recall. And then they would ask him another question. He'd be like, uh, to the best of my recollection, I don't know. And he would be like, just he wouldn't say anything until Senator Tom Cotton asked him. Do you like Jason Bourne or James Bond movies? No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I do. And so, like, we, the one thing we learned in this hearing was that he likes Jason Bourne. I don't even know what to say about Jeff Sessions anymore. Yeah. He's so displeasing to me on every level to all of my senses. My entire body, like— Disgusting. Has a physical reaction when I look at him or for, hear his voice. For me, the the worst part was specifically when he had that Jason Bourne, James Bond conversation with Tom Cotton because it was like, oh, this is what he looks like when he's relaxed. This is what he looks like when he's not like evading an entire legal process. All right. Our next weenie is Missouri Representative Mike Moon, who... <laughs> This week to announce a new abortion bill that he says will seek to end abortion in the state of Missouri. He ripped off the head of a chicken. But like any good career politician, when I get the call, I'm going back to work. And then ripped its heart out. And uh, I think we need to get to the heart of the matter here. Can you not say ripped off the head? That's what he did, though. It's so it's so Ew. Awful. <laughs> Don't get mad at me. Get mad at Mike Moon for I mean, making this situation. Awful. Yeah, so this is how he chose to announce a very restrictive abortion bill. This is also the same man who proposed creating an abortion tool exhibit next to the slavery exhibit in Missouri State Museum and previously filed legislation that would say the embryo has the same rights of a full adult person. Our next weenie is Donald Trump Jr. I think it might be his first time on our weenies of the week. So congrats to him. Really? I don't know. What else has he done? He's just always kind of like a jerk. Yeah. I guess Eric Trump has. Eric Trump has. Ivanka has. Jared has. Anyway, Donald Trump Jr., congratulations to the weenies of the week family. You are one this week because even though you're not supposed to be involved in politics, you have obviously become a spokesperson as Eric has. And he keeps tweeting. And it's not like that there's anything specific that he's done that merits his Weenie of the Week title. It's just that he's such an asshole constantly without pausing to take a breath of air. And he's just been live tweeting through all of the hearings over the past couple weeks, the Comey one and the Sessions one. I appreciate that Donald Trump's namesake is fulfilling his duties live tweeting when his father is not tweeting. So here's the tweet. He quote tweeted a tweet from someone who's like kind of like a bow tie wearing pundit personality saying events like today talking about the shooting at the congressional baseball practice. So he said events like today are exactly why we took issue with New York elites glorifying the assassination of our president. And Donald Trump Jr. quote tweeted it and said this. So what they're referring to is the public theater's production of Julius Caesar that depicts 
Donald Trump is Julius Caesar. It's an actor dressed to look just like President Donald Trump as he's assassinated on stage. Look as his character is stabbed to death. And there's no mistaking the Trump connection. Check out the unbuttoned overcoat and red tie that hangs over his waist. First of all, we don't have to get into a whole conversation about the public theater or whatever. But let me say, it's not particularly original to put, to like modernize a Shakespeare play or to like put a president in the role of a king or somebody in a Shakespeare play. Like high school teachers have been doing that for decades. Okay. Number two is that the Trumps are like the epitome of New York elites, although they don't feel like they are because they're so tacky and nobody likes them. Also, we just want to call out former Weenie of the Week, Governor Matt Bevin from Kentucky, who has been enthusiastically blocking critics of his on Twitter. Apparently, uh, the ProPublica reporter Charles Orenstein did a long Twitter thread about this, that Kentucky Democrats complain that Bevin blocks them, and it's called hashtag Bevin blocked. And I want to give a congratulations to our producer, Levi Sharp, who is blocked by Matt Bevan for tweeting the podcast because the podcast name is so rude that he assumed that it had to be an insult, which it was. <laughs> so congrats to Levi. Congrats, Levi. And also big pat on the back to Big Time Dicks for doing what we're supposed to do, I guess, pissing off Matt Bevan. Our dick of the week this week are trap laws, and we're doing this in honor of the one-year anniversary of the Supreme Court case Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstead, which was decided at the Supreme Court on June 27th, 2016, so it's almost been a year since then. And in that case, the court ruled five to three, a decisive victory that Texas could not impose certain regulations on abortion clinics that they were doing in a way that was pretty flagrantly trying to suppress the ability of women to get an abortion in Texas. So the Supreme Court struck down two parts of the Texas HB2 law and found them unconstitutional. One was a requirement that abortion providers have admitting privileges at local hospitals. And the second was that abortion clinics have to have the same sort of facilities as ambulatory surgical centers. And these were found unconstitutional because of an undue burden placed on women seeking abortions in the state of Texas. And they're known as trap laws, targeted regulation of abortion providers, which have cropped up across the country. So basically, they're a method that the Republicans at a state level are using to try to make abortion, since abortion is legal, to make it as hard as possible to get. And these regulations are stupid because like one of them, the hospital one, it means like a hallway has to be eight feet wide so that two gurneys can pass each other in the hallway, which like is not a thing that would happen. And remember that women might not live near a hospital. So to force abortion providers to have admitting privileges within 30 miles really limits where abortion providers can operate. So it hurts women who don't have easy, readily available access to a lot of these facilities.
Now joining us is Amy Hagstrom-Miller, the founder and CEO of Whole Woman's Health and lead plaintiff in Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstead. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. It's a delight to be with you. So it's been almost one year since the case went to the Supreme Court. Um, could you walk us through a little bit what it was like to follow the case all the way to the Supreme Court? You know, we were right in the middle of everything. Um, you know, it took us about a little over three years. It was pretty long. Um, I'm told by the legal people it was lightning speed. Um, mm-hmm. But for, from where I sat, it felt like it took forever. Um, and, you know, all during that time, um, as a service provider, what we were dealing with on the ground in Texas was, you know, the uncertainty of whether we'd be able to keep our clinics open, having to close a couple of them, having to explain to the women who needed our services, um, you know, why it was hard to find a clinic that was open and what had happened. And, um, you know, so for us, that time period, you know, wasn't about the legal case as much as it was about how are we going to keep our doors open and how can we respond to the women in the community who can no longer um, have access. And so it was sort of a, a dual pass. A year ago, I was experiencing this crazy waiting game where I was making a pilgrimage to Washington, D.C. twice a week to sit in the courtroom on decision days, um, not really knowing which day they would be announcing our case. Um, and so that's kind of that's kind of a short a short description. I love the detail of like what happened when when the decision finally came through. Where were you? What'd you do after? Yeah, there was a lot of people who were able to gather um, in D.C. because the the court had basically made a an announcement about which day they were going to announce our decision. And so we had a lot of supporters gathered around, which was just phenomenal. And you know, sitting in the courtroom, and I was sitting next to Nancy Northup, who's the CEO of, of the Center for Reproductive Rights, who were the attorneys that represented us. And, you know, as soon as I figured out that Justice Breyer was going to read our decision, I knew we had won. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just sort of listening to Justice Breyer start reading the majority decision, um, you know, right away, the first couple things he said, I knew we had restored access for millions of women in the state of Texas. Um, and then he kept going and, you know, he read, you know, finding after finding. And I realized just sitting there in the courtroom that not only had we, um, you know, brought justice for Texas, but I, in my head, I watched Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, Missouri, you know, as he was reading the decision, I realized that, that the relief we had brought through our case was going to be uh, much far, much more far reaching. And um, it was going to restore access and sort of block you know, trap laws in, in multiple states beyond our borders and really set a strong legal precedent that would sort of prevent future damage from happening. And that was, you know, beyond beyond my wildest dreams. And, and then I just had to sit there, you know, because you can't like stand up and cheer or like squeal in the <laughs> Supreme Court, you know, they'll kick you out. So then I just had to like sit there, you know, as we were listening to it. Um, and there was one decision after ours. Um, that we that we had to sit through before we could go out um, out to the front of the courtroom. And by the time I stepped out on the Supreme Court steps, I mean, the crowd was just going crazy. Um, and, you know, I mean, how could anybody ever forget? They were chanting my name. Um, and it was, you know, it was a... It was quite a powerful moment um, that, that, that I'll never forget. After years of fighting heartless, anti-choice politicians who would seemingly stop at nothing to put abortion out of reach... I want everybody to understand you don't mess with Texas women. That's amazing. So what has happened in the aftermath? Has it worked out the way you thought it would? Has this suddenly 
paved the way for millions of women to now have access that couldn't before? Um, one of the things that, that you know, happened immediately was this really strong Supreme Court precedent where, you know, Texas really got smacked down. Not only did they restore, um, you know, sanity to the, to the regulations that we're dealing with, but the, you know, the decision basically says that a state, any state, can't insert itself between a woman and her ability to access safe abortion services without supporting um, the assertion with medical evidence. You know, so the state just can't say, We're, we have an interest in women's health and safety. They have to support it with, with um, you know, science and medical fact, which is a huge precedent that had never been really put forward before. Um, it's also been used um, in at least three instances so far to restore voting rights. So those things were really powerful immediately. The other thing that was powerful right away is that because we struck down the admitting privileges requirement, all the remaining clinics that were open in the state, so there were 18 open at that point, um, were able to expand services because we were able to use all of the physicians on our teams. What's taken a little longer is actually reopening um, clinics that had been shut down as a byproduct of this law. So with the Austin Clinic reopening, are there plans for expansion? So what we've seen since the... um, since the decision and since, um, you know, the pathway has been opened to um, reopen just a, a, a completely adequate regular doctor's office clinic setting, um, you know, that isn't sort of a mini hospital um, kind of requirement. Um, what we've seen is we have three facilities that have reopened in the state to date, Whole Woman's Health of Austin, and then there's two others, a Planned Parenthood facility and another private facility in Dallas that have been able to reopen. Um, and I know that you know, many of us are looking at the state and trying to figure out, one, how do we find the resources um, to be able to, um, you know, rebuild the care infrastructure and reopen facilities that were shuttered? Um, and then also, where where are we needed most? Um, one of the tragedies of a, a, you know, trap law like HB2 is that, you know, once you shutter clinic facilities, you've really decimated that care environment in ways that are not only difficult to rebuild, but we actually may never see it rebuilt in the same way. You know, we went from 44 clinics down to 18. And kind of one of my takeaways there is that while it was incredibly powerful to challenge this law and and to ultimately win in the Supreme Court, you know, what would have been the most effective is if we could have come together and stop it from passing in the first place because the damage that that it did in those three years when it was in effect um, has, you know, shuttered many clinics um, and really denied access for thousands of women during those three years. Um, And and so it's sort of a mixed blessing. You know, I feel fantastic about, um, you know, beating the state and being able to clear the path to restore access. But it's going to take some time to rebuild that sort of fabric of, of care that we had, you know, built over you know, 30 to 40 years throughout the state of Texas. about your staff and you personally, you said that it 
destroyed the fabric of care in the state because you were fighting the whole time. But what about being a care provider as an individual while you're in a state that's very publicly hostile to abortion rights? I don't want to say that it's sort of like, oh, what you should expect being an abortion provider in Texas, because in me, you know, to me, it's completely unacceptable that mm-hmm. there's this certain part of the healthcare system that gets targeted and that, you know, is sort of oppressed by state regulations, um, you know, that are funded and orchestrated by, um, you know, the religious right, you know. So with that caveat, <laughs> I will say that it, it is part of what we know to be true in a place like Texas. And so, you know, while we challenged HB2, um, during the time that we served as plaintiffs, um, our health department inspections that we have annually, they're like a surprise inspection that you have annually, um, I, I will tell you they took a different tone. You know, the health department was very aggressive. You know, the, the inspections were more political in nature. You know, and what happens is that in a state like Texas where you have the administration we do under either Rick Perry or Greg Abbott, The health department is really an extension. Um, It's almost like they're a tool um, of the anti-abortion movement, and they they come in and they can really um, go far beyond acting like professional health um, administrators and and become more political in nature. And so Whole Woman's Health and other providers in the state really experienced that. Um, While we were challenging the state, um, we experienced some targeting from the health department. And the other thing is you can see that the state really has blatantly disregarded the whole woman's win in the Supreme Court. And um, four days after we won, they introduced these ridiculous regulations um, through the administrative path to require that all women um, need to have either a a cremation or a funeral um, for the products of conception, um, whether um, they have a miscarriage or an abortion. you know, absolutely insulting, um, really rooted in the shame and stigma that we see around abortion in this country, um, and just blatantly disregarding the requirement that the Supreme Court put forward to support um, any restrictions on abortion with, with medical evidence. You know, there's no health benefit to requiring a woman to, you know, have a funeral for her embryo after she has a miscarriage. It's absurd. And then in the, in the legislative session that we're dealing with um, that started soon after that, we've seen, you know, I think over 40 bills introduced trying to add further restrictions um, to women's access to safe abortion care in the state of Texas. And so they follow this path that by any means necessary, um, they know they can't, you know, reverse the Roe v. Wade decision, but they're going to try to make access to abortion impossible. And speaking of those abortion bills that you mentioned, uh, they're also just the passage of Senate Bill 8, which bans dilation in an excavation, that seems unprecedented. Um, what effect does that have on women? How is that affecting your clinics? Um, what can be done to, you know, can, do, do, does every single one of these laws have to be taken up to the Supreme Court to be challenged? Like, right. what can we do? So, you know, the, when we see SB 8, we see a few different things. You know, we see this continued press from the state with a real disregard to the resources that are used, basically taxpayer-funded political operations on, on the state's behalf, you know, passing things that they know are unconstitutional and, you know, thereby sort of committing Texans' resources to fighting this kind of ridiculous regulation. Um, here again, there's no benefit to health and safety here. There's no sort of problem that this, this 
legislation is solving. It's another law that's being passed that, with the goal of trying to restrict women's access to abortion services. And you see the state inserting itself in medical decision-making and medical training in ways that they don't with any other kind of healthcare discipline. Like you don't see you know, the state coming in and telling heart surgeons, you know, what procedure they should use or telling, uh, you know, a, a knee surgeon exactly what kind of incision they should make. But here they're trying to insert themselves and, and play doctor and really tell highly trained physicians um, how they're supposed to practice medicine. Um, and it's, it's absolutely insulting, but it's also really rooted in this, you know, abortion is somehow different. And I think, one, we can't accept that frame. We can't sort of accept that assertion that abortion is somehow different than um, all other kinds of health care. And we, we've seen this sort of D&E ban, um, it, which is really an abortion ban. It's just clothed in um, some fancy language, but we've seen this kind of D&E ban passed in a few other states, and um, it hasn't worked. It, you know, it's a waste of resources, and the state knows that it's it's not constitutional, and, and um, you know, they're inviting, uh, inviting a challenge for sure. You've spoken before about seeing women self-aborting in Texas. Has this continued? Have you seen more or less of it in the past year? You know, restricting women's access to abortion doesn't change the need for abortion. Um, we still have the need in, in many communities for safe abortion services as being part of the healthcare system. And so when you shutter clinics, it doesn't do anything to help the women in that community that still need the care. And so if a woman is unable to travel, um, is unable to take multiple days off work, um, she still needs that abortion. And so she's going to search out other ways um, to take care of herself. And so we've seen an increase in um, what, what we would call self-managed care of women um, finding medications that might induce abortion services or using other methods. And, and some of them are pretty graphic. You know, there are sort of some pre-row kinds of things that we saw before abortion was legal in this country. Um, you know, people either you know, consensually trying to harm themselves or using herbs and using um, knitting needles, et cetera, to try to cause a miscarriage, to try to cause an abortion because they either can't get access or they believe they can't get access because of the, you know, misinformation that's out there in the community. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting conflict because I, um, I think that women are capable of managing their health care. And I don't, abortion is a really safe procedure. Um, and so part of me can see this as almost an advancement, you know, from an empowerment kind of framework. I, I have a vision for how it could look for women to be able to um, take care of themselves and manage a medication abortion safely at home. Unfortunately, the rise in self-abortion has been has been done outside the medical mainstream without the support that women deserve and has been done as a reaction to restrictive care environments. So moving forward, I mean, things are bleak with abortion rights, and it's a little bit overwhelming because the assault's coming from the state and now and the federal level. But what do you and other abortion providers need most, and what's what are your next steps? It's really important for us to realize that the vast majority, um, you know, seven in ten, people in this country support women's access to safe abortion services. And while the opposition might have, uh, you know, large mouthpieces and, and well-funded um, sort of amplification, 
um, I think it's important to, to remember that and to remember that, that, you know, everyone loves somebody and knows somebody who's had an abortion. And that when you think about someone you know or love facing an unplanned pregnancy, you want that person to be supported and to have compassionate care. And when we think about it on a personal level, about a situation like this happening to someone we know and we care about, um, I think our empathy really comes forward and we realize that this is a human rights issue and that this is a justice issue and that the vast majority of Americans are supportive. And we can't let the sort of powerful and loud few um, determine the future for all of us. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Time for our best segment, How to Handle the Dicks, where we talk about what we're doing to cope with a stressful administration. Prachi, how are you handling the dicks? This past week, I made a decision to stop drinking. Forever? No. For now. Yeah, for now. Wow. I don't think I could handle forever. <laughs> That's a big decision. Forever is a long—I don't think I could do— commit to anything in life for forever. Me neither. That's a very long time. <laughs> uh, yeah, for now. It's Why'd been you do that? Because when I got back from Greece, I was like, I drank, I noticed that like I drank a lot and I was just like, you know what? I feel better and more awake and I can do more when I haven't drank because now that I'm in my 30s, I like wake up the next day and still feel that one glass of wine from the night before. And I'm- it's like, it, it's really sad. I just but. had this experience. I just went to my college reunion, which I never thought I would go to, but I did, and it was fun. And we all, or at least, mm, okay, so a lot of people drank as if they were in college. Right. As did I. And I also, like, I went to college in Vermont, so there's no food available after 10 p.m., so I, like, missed dinner and I like, drank as if I was in college. And I woke up, and I was destroyed the rest of the week, and I was sick. Oh, no. I was like messed up and I think a lot of people realize that too and it's just literally like when you just get to be older than a college yeah, student like it doesn't our, feel good it doesn't feel good on vacation uh, I went with one of my one of my good friends who's starting residency so she was like let's party and I was like let's not <laughs> so I ended up getting sick because we just like went out so much and I couldn't handle it and then I just stayed in bed one night sick while she went out to the club and and I think it was just because of like general drinking that I just got sick. Um, sure. it was, and it was like a head cold. It wasn't even like being hungover. It was like I a head a, cold. I got a cold in and like <laughs> Joanna <laughs> drinking. We, we both are just <laughs> broken. We're broken. Uh, I'm still drinking, but I'm <laughs> <laughs> well. In a few years, you'll probably make yeah. this decision. And well, and also the other part is that I want to like reorient my relationship with alcohol because I think like so many teenagers I started drinking to like feel less awkward around boys when I was a teenager and that's like and now I notice that I do it mostly to like I mean I do it just like 
to be social, to be like a human being. And I don't want to be drinking to be a human being. I just want to be able to be a human being. Yeah. So I'm just trying to figure out like, you know, just like, yeah, restart my relationship with alcohol and like on Great. my terms as a more functional human not being than like terms. and then on not on <laughs> alcohol or teenage prachis terms. Yes. I love it. <laughs> um my how to handle the dicks I forgot about. I went to a psychiatrist. I used to be on Zoloft like years ago and then I went off it. And I went to a psychiatrist and I got a Zoloft prescription because I'm so anxious all the time. No. Well, I'm I'm so happy that you saw a psychiatrist and that you got the prescription. Does it work for you? Is it successful? Oh, yeah. Good. For, I mean, for many years, it was so good. I haven't taken it yet. I just have it. Oh, okay. It's in a drawer. All right. But that's what I did because everything is so anxiety-provoking all the time. Yeah. All right. Well, that's we're me- we're both <laughs> medicating and demedicating. Oh, yeah, in medicating a way. and demedicating. Really beautiful. Yeah, I I just definitely I compared both, Zoloft to alcohol, which they're is both medication. <laughs> no, that's fine. But um, we're both in pursuit of mental health, and I'm just like really proud of us. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Big Time Dicks, and thank you so much to our guest, Amy Hagstrom-Miller. This show is produced by Levi Sharp with editorial oversight by Kate Drees. Mandana Mofidi is our executive director of audio. We featured music by Stuart Wood and Aaron Leader, and the episode was mixed by Brad Fisher. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so other people can find the show. And you can also find us on Panoply, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts. Although, if you're listening to this, you've probably already found us. Got a big time dick you want to tell us about? Send a voice note or email to bigtimedicks at jezebel.com or tweet at Jezebel using the hashtag bigtimedicks. We'll see you next Friday, and who knows what the world will look like then. Bye.